Well, the purpose of understanding more and more of the things of the Lord is to honor Him. And we honor Him by worshiping well so that we might live well, so that we might continue to think well. So you worship, think, live, worship, think, live, whatever. But you do that. It springs from worship. And so this morning, I'm going to be in the book of Micah. It's an Old Testament book. Micah was written eight centuries before Jesus came to a group of people. The northern kingdom has just gone into captivity, and, and Micah is writing to, to really say to the southern part of Israel, don't do this so that you won't have the same reality. So it's about judgment and restoration in the book of Micah. In the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets so I'm going to be addressing Micah this week and next week, especially in light of what's going to happen on November the 3rd, the general election. So bear with me and hang in there, and hopefully you can make heads or tails out of what I'm going to say. So Micah is writing, saying judgment is coming. God is about to bring his judgment upon the people, and he really talks about two major groups. One group are the leaders, and the other group are the prophets and the priests. The leaders are supposed to set a, a bar of excellence in the area of protecting the poor and to pursue justice and to do the right thing. And the prophets and the priests are to speak forth the word of God and hold forth the standards of God. And he says both these groups have neglected to do what they're supposed to do, and because of that, judgment is coming. For example, chapter 2, verse 1 2 and 3, he talks about the oppressive nature of the rulers. He says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power to do so. They covet fields and they seize them and houses. They take them away and they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against this family. I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. This is the wealthy would lay awake at night and devise plans, the leaders, and how to seize homes and seize lands and defraud their neighbors and to use their power in a corrupt fashion. And then he says, this is what he says about the priests and the prophets. Chapter two, verse six, he says, do not preach, thus they preach. They preach one should not preach of such things. Disgrace will never overtake us. In other words, the, the priest is saying, listen, you've got to deal with God and you violated God's standards. They said, hey, be, be, just kick back. No big deal. Disaster will not overtake us. And God's already said, I'm going to bring disaster upon you. And he says later in verse 11, it says, if, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people. In other words, they went out and said, I'm not going to talk about the standards of God. Let's talk about having a party. Let's talk about wine and strong drink and doing what we want to do. And, and then he says this, and he says that there are three results of that. This is what they're doing, three results. He says, number one, verse eight to chapter two, you strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly. In other words, you, you take advantage of people who are trusting you. 
Number two, he says, the, the women of my people, you drive out from their delightful homes. We think the women here probably are widows and they've been left at home by their husband. And, and he says, you, 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 you seize the homes of widows. And thirdly, and from their young children, you take away my splendor forever. In other words, that's an allusion to their inheritance. You seize their inheritance. You abuse people. You you take advantage of those who are weak and those who cannot protect themselves. And the judgment is coming. And then he says something in chapter 1, verse 16, that every time I read it, I just catch my breath. He says, make yourselves bald. Shave off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. And that's what he says, but because of your behavior, shave your head, which is a sign of, of horror. Shave your head, grieve for the children of your delight, because they're about to inherit the way you've lived. See, he's saying basically what Hosea says, you've sown the wind, but they will reap the whirlwind. And one thing I want to say today is that as, as we look at life and as we live our life and we worship well and think well and live well, that, that we as parents and grandparents and, and you, the wonderful singles in our church who, who, who are part of the body of Christ, we are setting a standard we are living in a way that will speak of the reality of Jesus or not. These people had walked away from their calling. And it says, because of that, the children of your delight will suffer. We have parents that will do everything in the world for their kids. Sports leagues, classes, this and so forth and so on. The greatest thing you can give your kids is a legacy of joyful godliness in Jesus. And so that, that's, that's, that's the background. I'm going to go to chapter 3 and give you three principles. So chapter 3 begins with the same chorus as the first part of the book where he talks about two groups of leaders. Verses 1 to 3. Here, here you heads of Jacob, you leaders, you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Are you... You are to hate the good. You, you say you hate the good and love the evil. You tear the skin from my people and, 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 and their flesh from their bones. In other words, you just abuse them. And he uses, uses the imagery of the next verse of, of cannibalism. He says you just abuse people for your own advantage. You, you don't pursue justice. You don't care for the poor. You don't care for those who cannot protect themselves. And then verses 5 to 6, he talks to the prophets and the priests. He says, and, and, and thus says the Lord Jehovah concerning the prophets who, who lead my people astray and they cry, peace. We have something to eat, but if you don't feed them, they cry, war. <laughs> Therefore, I sh it shall be night to them. They'll have no vision. Darkness will overtake them without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and they shall be black all over them. In other words, God's going to say, I'm not going to speak to them. They proclaim peace when there's no peace. They proclaim war because you don't feed them. And he said, I'm done with them. See, these people have made God in their own image. And so they cried peace when there's no peace. And when they should have spoken about the standards of God, they preached on the joy of the party lifestyle, wine and strong drink. They abused people. 
So I'm going to give you three principles. The first principle is this. We walk before the God who has spoken and who brings human flourishing or withholds his blessing. God wants to bless his people. Therefore, we will live as called out disciples of Jesus. Called out disciples of Jesus. Avoiding the mandate of verse 12, which says, therefore, because of you, leaders and priests and prophets, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field and Jerusalem will become a, a heap of ruins. And it happened. We walk before God. There's a little book called Pilgrim's Progress written in the 1600s by a man named John Bunyan. It's an allegory of the Christian faith. Bunyan has a burden on his back. He comes to the cross. It falls off. And then it's the story of his walk with the Lord and how he lived his life as he was heading toward heaven. And in one part of the book, Christian and his sidekick faithful are at a place called Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair represents the world and the worldly system and what you can buy and what you speak and how you understand it. And they go to Vanity Fair and, and Christian and faithful have no desire to commerce at Vanity Fair. And the people get upset with them. And one of the people come, come one person comes up to Christian and, or Pilgrim and he says, aren't you going to buy anything? There's nothing here tantalizes your sight. Aren't you going to buy something? And, 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 the, and John Bunyan says that the, the pilgrim fixed his gaze upon him. And he said, sir, we buy the truth. We buy the truth. And in other words, we're people of truth. We walk before God under the banner of Jesus, under the authority of the Bible. And so we live the truth. We speak the truth. We worship. We think well. We live well. That's the paradigm. Conversely, in 1987, a man was appointed to the Supreme Court named Anthony Kennedy. He just retired two years ago. And in 1992, he wrote the majority opinion 5-4 in a case called Casey versus Planned Parenthood that would have limited, put a limitation on certain areas of uh, abortion. And this is what Justice Kennedy wrote regarding the core of liberty. He said this. He said... At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. At the heart of liberty, he says, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, what it means to live. You, you call the shots. It's up to you. It's up to every individual. Bill Bennett, the former Secretary of Education, after reading that, I've read many articles on this and tried to understand it, said this is an incredible, crass statement of utter subjectivity where I call the shots. He says, I can't believe you wrote that. So if, if I think about this statement, that it's up to you, and I thought about a song that I heard as a child that my mom and dad heard when they were growing up and it became popular in the 70s. After it was very popular in the 30s, 1934, entitled Anything Goes. It's a silly little song. It says, in olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking, but God now knows anything goes. Good authors, too, who once knew better words now only use four-letter words writing prose because 
anything goes. If it's driving cars you like, if it's little bars you like, if it's old hymns you like, if it's bare limbs you like, if it's May West you like, anything goes. You have to Google May West. You guys know who May West is. It says, the world has gone mad today and good's bad today and black's white today and day's night today because anything goes. That was 1934. We're way, way ahead of that now. Anything goes. So, so I thought about this and I thought, you know, if, if you really believe, if you really believe that you define your existence and you define what's true, then, then, I, then I understand, to a degree, I understand why you would be involved in the, the sexual revolution, the, the, the gender-free revolution that says today you may be male, tomorrow you may be female, who knows what's going to happen Tuesday because you define your existence. Or, or the LGBTQ movement that says this is really up to the individual. And that, that's the world we live in. And so I, I think of a, a poem written in 1737 by a guy named Alexander Pope, and I think about it frequently. And he says this, he says, vice is a monster of such frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too often or oft, we grow accustomed to its face. First we endure, then we pity, then we embrace. That's so true, isn't it? I mean, those of us who are older, first you endure it, then you pity it, then it becomes part of the passing landscape. And so if you really believe that, we live in a values-free culture, and you call the shots. I understand why you could come down at this place. But as a Bible-believing, blood-bought follower of Jesus, we can't go there. And it's a great sadness. It's a great sadness in my heart. When I realized that a week and a half ago at a town hall meeting in Philadelphia, the Democratic Standard Bearer, former Vice President Joe Biden, said that in my administration, there will be nothing that will limit or keep an eight or a 10-year-old from transitioning. Now listen to me, that is child abuse. That's child abuse. And if they do anything that involves hormone replacements or anatomical differences, it is horrendous child abuse. I understand gender incongruities, which means that in this culture where everything is open, everything is discussed, you, you can be confused. I understand that. But you, but you go back to the Bible, and the Bible says God made us male and female, and God said it is very good. And so we say... Gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. It's, 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 it's a good thing to rejoice in the way the Lord fashioned you in your mother's womb and brought you out in a glorious way. We have a lot of people in our church having babies, well, women having babies. And, and uh, they, there is something called... Um, Gender reveal parties, which we never did. We, we, of course, we had our kids. I think our first child we had, and there's no sonogram, so we just surprise, and the second one surprise. You know, now you know the gender of your child. You know, 20 minutes after conception, it's pretty amazing what they're able to do. And so they have this, uh, they have these gender reveal parties. And if they have a pink cake if it's a girl, and a blue cake if it's a guy, or they'll fire a cannon and pink if it's a girl, it's blue if it's a boy, they have a skydiver come in, trailing pink clouds if it's a girl, blue if it's a I mean, some of them are just way out there, but that's, that's new to me. But listen, I think it's great. So it's, it's a girl, everybody jumps up and starts hugging, and if it's a blue, what do they do? They jump up and start hugging. You know, it's, it's a good thing. 
hear me. I can see in the future that people will say it is the height of arrogance for you to have a gender reveal party. You should let your child choose their gender at age 10, 8, 11, whatever. It's not for you to decide. And at that time, we just have to say, well, we walk under the authority of the Bible, and this is, this is who we are. So you see, the, the main issue, you, you go in the culture, the, the main issue is, is Psalm 53 or 54, verse 3, that says this, for, for, for strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before them. See, hear that? There's no concept of there's a God to whom I answer. I don't set God before me. I call the shots. It's all about me. And, and another psalm is quoted in Romans 3 where Paul just addresses this issue. And he says, I'll start in verse 15. He says, their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Listen, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So, so we walk in the presence of God. We will answer to the living God one day if you're a follower of Jesus. So, so that's who we are. That's the way we live. And so as we deal with God, we realize, going back to the passage in verse 4, he says that, that he, at times God hides his face because of our sin. At times, verse 12 says, he brings destruction. We deal with God who desires for us to worship well, think well, and live well. He desires human flourishing for us. So the second point is that, is that these people preyed upon the innocent. They, they preyed upon the innocent. Again, chapter 2, verse 2, they covet a field and they seize them. They covet houses, they take them away. They oppress man and his house. And then the acid test. Verse 9 of chapter 3, hear, hear this, you head of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, verse 10, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. See, the, 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 to me, this is the linchpin of, of this passage. You build Zion with the blood of the innocent and you walk in iniquity. In fact, chapter six, he asks this rhetorical question. Verse seven, he says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000s of rivers of oil? And he says, shall I give? My firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He says, of course not. And yet, in this day, in the day of Micah and after, there was widespread child sacrifice. When you read in the Old Testament, the God Molech, that is the God to whom you sacrifice children for your prosperity. Child sacrifice was practiced all over the Middle East not among the Jews, because they're people of the covenant. If you go to Carthage today in Tunisia, you can go in these caves, these, and you can see little markers, little markers all over the place, hundreds of them, and these are the graves of children who have been sacrificed in that city for the well-being of the parents or the families 
or the city. And so the damning statement is you build Zion with, with innocent blood. So point two is life is a sacred gift from the Lord. Therefore, the sanctity of human life is a linchpin issue. Describe that later. In light of this, we prayerfully support ministries and individuals who advocate for or defend life from conception until natural death, to quote a confessional statement, as we live out the realities of this life. And let me say, in this passage, in our life, I believe the sanctity of human life, that life is a gift from God, is a linchpin argument. By that I mean it is an argument that holds everything else together. If you, if you get the fact that men and women are made in the image of God and are worthy of respect in Christian love, if you get that right, you get a lot of things right. If you do not get that, if you deny that, then you open a Pandora's box. Like in the Greek mythology, you open a box and other bad things just come streaming out. Example. If, if I believe all men and women are made in the image of God, then there's, there should be no vestige of racism, elitism, gender bashing, zip code, Glorification in my life. It answers the issue of racism. We are all from a common heritage. And if you stand at the cross, the land is, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. If you want to attack racism in your spirit, elitism in your spirit, you study the Bible. And you understand that all men and women are made in the image of God. You, we, don't, we don't, listen, we don't judge people based upon their economic viability, what they bring to the table. We don't judge people based upon their looks or their athleticism or, 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 or their ethnicity or their gender or, or, or if, if they have needs or not, special needs. Men and women are made in the image of God. It, it puts to death these things. It's freeing. Recently, we went to California and flying back, or in the process, a bag was lost and the car seat was lost. And so we got back to Charleston. I was dealing with the airlines, and the man in charge was incredibly kind. I spent over an hour with him. He was trying to run things down, giving us whatever we needed to do, and just very, very gracious. And the more we got to talk, the more I enjoyed him. And um, anyway, so he had a Thick southern accent. Now, I'm from the south, but there are thick accents, and this guy was thick. And so we're talking, and, uh, and I go, I go uh, where are you from? And he told me, I thought, mm-hmm, I could have guessed. And, and then I said, how long have you lived in Charleston? Because he hadn't lost much of that accent. And he said, a year? I said, well, how do you like Charleston? No. He says, I don't. I went, whoa, okay. And I said, I'm sorry. He said, you want to tell me why? I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you why. I said, why? He said, I'm going to tell you three things. Number one, it's overpriced. I said, well, yeah. Number two, the traffic is horrible. Mm-hmm. Number three, there are way too many Yankees down here. And uh, I started laughing. He says, hey, everybody on my street is from Ohio, Pennsylvania, or New Jersey. 
And he said, and they vote down here like they voted up there. And uh, I was laughing. My wife was over there laughing and kind of saying, amen. And I thought, you're from Minnesota. What are you doing? Well, Minnesota's right next to the North Pole. Just, you're right there and you're in the North Pole, you know? Well, it was funny. And he was, I think he was trying to be humorous. But, but really, when you understand all people made the image of God, then that type of logic loses its sting. Because all people are worthy of respect in Christian life. Therefore, as I think about this election, it's with great sadness, great sadness, that this past year and the year before that, our resolution was introduced called the Born Alive Survivors Protection Act. And this was a bill sponsored by, I think, a very godly man named Ben Sass, senator from Nebraska. And basically it says that if a child is being aborted and it is born alive, that child should be rushed to the hospital and protected. I mean, to me, it's like, yeah, sure. It hasn't made it to the house floor yet because the house leadership won't bring it there. And people say, well, it rarely happens. Well, it happened 143 times last year in the eight states that report such things. So one time is more than enough, but 143. And in the aftermath of this discussion, the governor of Virginia, who's a graduate of VMI, was chairman of the honor committee for a citadel guy or gal, who's a neuropediatrician, who served with distinction in our military, uh, made this comment. He said, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. And he's, he's speaking as a neuropediatrician. I mean, we, I can get these things confused because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not that abreast of it. He says, I can tell you what would happen, that the infant would be delivered, the infant would be kept comfortable, the infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother, close quote. In other words, the mother or the family would decide if that baby lives or dies. That is called infanticide. Ben Sass, again, in response to that, said this, the governor has tarnished the American idea of equality under the law. He betrayed the universal truth of human dignity and he turned the stomachs of civilized people, not just in this country, but in every country on the face of the earth. It's a great sadness. It's a great sadness for me to tell you that the Democrat standard bearer has supported the Hyde Amendment for decades as a senator. Hyde Amendment says, there's a legislation produced by a man named Henry Hyde, a wonderful congressman from Illinois, who says that government money will not be used for abortion as a means of birth control or gender selection. And the only way that government money will be used were, were three examples, and I won't give you the first two because this is a PG audience, but the third is if the mother's life is in danger, the government can intervene. The party platform now of, of, one, of one group says we want the government to pay for abortions through Medicaid. We want to remove the Hyde Amendment. That's a great sorrow, a great sadness to my soul. It's a great sadness to my soul that, that President Clinton said in 1992 when he was running for office, I've got a hundred stories about this, 
We want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. And today, we've been told that we must celebrate abortion. There are websites where women write in and say, this is the good thing I've done, I abort. And there's forgiveness for those who abort. I'm not here to browbeat people. But when you abort a, 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 a child, you're aborting a baby. It's a life. It's great sadness. See, when you value life, things hold together. Today, in our day and age, we forget this, in our day and age, right now, October 2020, right now in China, there are 1.5 to 2 million Uyghur minority people who've been put in re-education camps where they're being systematically harvested for organs, where women are being forced to abort babies, where they're re-educating the minority people to become like the majority culture. And as the State Department says, it is a genocide in our day and age. Because in the, in the communist mindset, there is no God to whom you're, you're accountable. You're accountable only to the state and the authorities of the state tell you what's right and what is wrong. Therefore, there's no fixed truth. You're not accountable. They have no fear of God before their eyes. And it's a very short step to abusing people, to say your life is worth something because you are this and your life is not worth something because you're not Han Chinese. You're a simple minority, Uyghur people. In 1980, 1994, Rwanda, Central Africa, a country of 10 million, 10 million people, in the course of a few weeks, 800,000 were butchered to death, most of them the minority Tutsis by the Hutus, with machetes. And they would go to their neighbors and they would machete them to death, and as they did so, they would cry out a battle cry that went like this, kill the cockroaches. Kill the cockroaches. In other words, this isn't real. These people are not really human. They're less than human. You read the Nazis, what they thought about the Jews and the Slavs and the homosexuals. They're less than human. But we say all men and women are made in the image of God. We say, according to our faith statement, that because of the Lordship of Christ, we will protect life from conception until natural death. There's a man named Joseph Bottom who writes for a wonderful little magazine called, or journal called First Things. I get it off and on. And he says this, he said, I, in the general election, I would vote for a communist dog catcher if he was pro-life. That's an overstatement. There are probably very few communist dog catchers that are pro-life. But what he's saying is this, he says, there's no moral equivalent issue than the sanctity of human life. Because if you get that right, you get a lot of things right. And so many of you are young, please hear me. So it brings us down to this election. Um, I talk to so many people and they ask what I think and we have dialogue and I've, I've heard countless people say, <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like either candidate. You know? Some people say, you know, one candidate's been married three times, he's boisterous, he seems comes across kind of arrogant, his tweets are toxic. Uh, the, the other guy is older than he, just, I'm not sure how he thinks, if he thinks well, he's, he's changed his positions frequently on a number of issues. And I, I can add, and I was around 1987 when this man with Ted Kennedy destroyed the reputation 
of an impeccable jurist named Robert Bork who'd been nominated to be on the Supreme Court. Destroyed his reputation. And they say, I don't like either one of them. There's something in psychology called wish fulfillment. Wish fulfillment means it's kind of like a waking dream. You're wishing something and you see it fulfilled and it's wonderful. So, in my little universe of wish fulfillment, I wish one of these three guys were on the ballot on November the 3rd, okay? These are three of my favorite presidents. George Washington. Man, the more I studied George Washington's life, the more I go, he was the man. There he was. In fact, he wrote a little book called Laws of Civility, which I think all of us should read. Or, or the second guy is Theodore Roosevelt. He was a character. I'll just say, I'm not as rushed for time as it was the first service. His daughter said he wanted to be the bride of every funeral and the corpse at every funeral. Excuse me, the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He was really larger than life. And the next guy is Calvin Coolidge, soft-spoken guy born in Vermont, governor of Massachusetts. Anyway, these three guys were moral paragons. They were people of purpose and dignity. But you know what? They're not going to be on the ballot. I've got A or B. So this is what you do. And we're going to publish this on our website this week. What you do is you get the party platforms out. Party platforms are statements regarding where this party wants to see our country go. And you read them and you vote accordingly as a disciple of Jesus. That's it. That's what you do. Point three. We live under the Lordship of Christ. We are to live and speak the truth of Holy Scripture. Therefore, we will do so with a sense of utter dependence upon the reality and the strength and the grandeur and goodness of God. So in Micah chapter 3, Micah talks about people blowing it. Then he says this in verse 8, but as for me, I am filled with the power which comes from the Spirit of God, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. You know, he says, we speak, but we speak, 1 Peter 3, 15, with gentleness and kindness. I'm filled with the Spirit of God and, 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 and I'm, I'm, I'm with, with, with justice and might. Or he says in chapter 6, the verse that's over the Library of Congress, etched in stone. <laughs> he says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. and what, what is good is good, is good. See, it's good. These things are good. And because it's good, God requires it of you. Three things. He says, you must be someone who, who does justice and who loves kindness and who walks humbly with your God. So, so we will pursue justice for those who cannot protect themselves, for people who are poor, for people who are on the outside looking in, and we're going to pursue justice, and we're going to love mercy and the way we talk to each other and the way we love people around us, and we're going to walk humbly with God. We're not going to be bombastic or arrogant or uncaring. We're going to do that. We're going to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And in a time when, when we're seeing, I think we're seeing the death of civility, it's so interesting that in the midst of all of this bantering and so forth and so on, and Justice Ginsburg dies. And 
the president nominates to take her place a woman named Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, I didn't watch much of the questions through this, from the Senate or committee, and, um, but, but I did see certain excerpts and I read articles. And this is a woman, who, she's 48. She's a mother of seven. She is a professor and was trained at Notre Dame. For that, we'll forgive her as November the 7th approaches for us Clemson fans. Um, she is a devoted follower of Jesus. She's the real deal. And she was questioned. Yeah, one, one little website I saw showed her sitting there answering the senator's questions. And it says that don't feel too sorry for Judge Coney Barrett. She's used to answering stupid questions. She has seven children. But one of the questions asked her was, do you disavow white racism <laughs> or white supremacy? She's adopted two children from Haiti. Really? Another said, do you, can you say you've never been involved in sexual uh, abuse of, of people? I'm like, oh, come on. But she answered them all with dignity and grace and kindness. And it was an incredible picture of the way I think we should be. Not heckling, not backbiting, not bombastic, just gracious. And then in the middle of all this, there was an article released last week in the editorial in the Wall Street Journal on October the 20th by a man who, when he writes editorials, he, he, he is an in-your-face pointed guy. But in this one, he said this. He said, Judge Coney Barrett may also prove to be a beacon for those of us trying to navigate these turbulent and dismaying times. She is an example of how to conduct herself with grace and dignity. It's that in her personality and her character, as much as in her philosophy, she could prove to be a model for us in a remarkable way for the way that she spoke and lives out her values. She's, she's has seven kids. She's one of seven kids, and her husband is an only child. Imagine his shock. And he closes the editorial like this. She's not running for political office. Indeed, she spent most of the process patiently explaining exactly why judges aren't and shouldn't be lawmakers. But the philosophy she articulates and the principles she judges by and the values she lives by offer important lessons for conservatives on the campaign trail as much as conservatives on the bench or I say conservatives sitting in the pews or standing in the pulpit. We speak with dignity and love. In the aftermath of this, what's interesting, in the aftermath of these proceedings, Senator Feinstein, who will certainly not vote for her, came up to Senator, Senator Lindsey Graham from our state, who was the chairman of the Judicial Committee, and she said, basically, I want to thank you for a smooth, seamless, open, gracious you know, discussion with Judge Coney Barrett. And she was caught on the microphone, and people have abused her as if she was advocating murdering vast numbers of people. See, civility, brothers and sisters, is dead, but not with us. We speak with dignity, and we love people, and we listen, and we are gracious. So, I'm going to close with this. I have a family church I love dearly. They have a two, little girl that's two years and four months, and a little boy that's 12 weeks old. 
They went out and bought a pumpkin for the first time as a family because, you know, Harvest Festival, Halloween's coming this Friday, I think, and just put it on the front, the front doorstep. It's a big pumpkin. And they got it the next day, and the pumpkin had been put at the head of their stairs on the second floor. And the husband looked at his wife and he said, did you move the pumpkin? And she said, no. And he said, I didn't. I don't think the 12-week-old can do it. And he asked his two-year-old, four-month-old daughter, he says, yeah, Daddy, I did it, which is pretty amazing. He get it inside, up the stairs. It's pretty amazing. And he said, why? And she said, I was afraid the pumpkin was cold. You know? And um, he laughed. And I thought, you know, somewhere, maybe a year, maybe two years from now, he's going to have to tell his little girl, pumpkins don't have feelings in a very like fashion. In 1956, there was a man named James Michener who's written some incredible books. He was in, living in Budapest, and in 1956, the people of Budapest rose up and said, we're going to throw off the yoke of uh, Roman totalitarianism and live in freedom, and they had these riots in the streets, and the Soviets pulled back for four or five days. And then after five days, the tanks came rumbling in, hundreds were killed, thousands were put in concentration camps. There was a bridge over a... a over a river called Andal that went from the Hungarian side to the Austrian side, which was freedom. And so when these Austrians who had been pursuing freedom saw the Soviets coming in and saw people being taken to concentration camps and saw people being murdered, they grabbed their knapsacks, they put what they could in the knapsack, and they scurried across this bridge. This is a very small bridge. They scurried across this bridge to freedom. And so Minster interviewed these people and he said time after time he heard this story. He said the children were raised in an indoctrination that said the state is supreme, the Soviets had the best system in the world, God is dead, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no truth except what we tell you. And the children were told that and they were told if you ever hear your parents say anything different, tell us your parents said that. And they said the parents would go into camp, re-education camp. And so the parents could say very little, but they said when the kids hit 12, 13, or 14, the parents would pull them aside, they would drop the curtains, bolt the doors, and they would look at their child and say, everything you've been taught is a lie. There is a God who made the heavens and the earth. There is a God who has spoken. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And this God became a man in the fullness of time. And the state is not supreme. God is supreme. And I thought, you know, that's kind of what we do every week, isn't it? We get together and say, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that's just not true. This is true. And we live this way so that our children will have a legacy of courage and faith and dignity and hope. And so the name of the living God might be honored and people may come to know him as Savior and King. Let's pray. Lord, for this day, we are so thankful, so thankful we can open the Bible and hear it from you. So thankful this man named Micah wrote this strong letter talking about judgment, but also deliverance. And we, I pray, Lord, that as brothers and sisters who walk under the banner of Christ, we would be Micah 6, 8 people, that we would, we would be people who pursue justice who cry out for those who cannot protect themselves, who, 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 who advocate for those who are disenfranchised. We would pursue justice. We would love mercy. 
Thanks be to God for the mercy of the cross. We would love the concept of forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We would love the gospel and that we'd walk humbly with you. Lord, make us humble people. Let us speak, but always let us speak with humility in Jesus' name. Amen.